Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the Gospel according to Matthew. We will be looking at chapter 6, again, considering the Lord's Prayer as it appears to us there in verses 9 through 13. And This morning, though I will read again the entire prayer, our focus will primarily be on just the latter half of verse 9 and all of verse 10. So Matthew 6, 9 through 13. You can find that text on page 950 in your pew Bibles. And I would remind you that we are now in the middle of our look together at this sixth chapter of Matthew, or I should say, at least at the beginning of this sixth chapter of Matthew. And we are at a point now in our consideration of the Christian life, or the life lived quorum Deo, before the face of Almighty God, where we need to just sort of pause and take a little time to break down the Lord's Prayer as it has been given to us here by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Beloved, I want you to understand it's not my aim in this series on the Lord's Prayer to look at this prayer exhaustively. I think if it were, we would be able to find enough fodder to content ourselves for many weeks, months, perhaps even years. But it is my hope to cover some of the highlights here and to point out to you the overarching principles that the Lord Jesus Christ lays down for you and I to grasp here with regards to prayer. And as I mentioned to you last week, we are given here in the Lord's Prayer a sort of pattern, an outline, if you will, of how it is that we, as the particular people of God, as those who have been reconciled to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, how it is that we are to come into the presence of our Father in heaven, trusting entirely upon Him for all that is necessary for life, both physically and spiritually, and to enjoy sweet communion with Him through this avenue of prayer. I've mentioned to you before, prayer is one of the greatest gifts that Almighty God in His perfect, infinite wisdom has given to His church. And I say that to say this, if you neglect to actively pray, you are neglecting one of the greatest privileges that is yours in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. Beloved, you have been given access to the Father through the Son. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His redemptive work, we have been told in the pages of sacred Scripture that we are to now come boldly. That we are to come in confidence, confidently. That we are to come as those who are indeed welcome to come. To the throne of grace in order to obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. You understand, you and I have been called as the very children of our Father in heaven to come to our Father and to speak with Him. We've been granted an audience through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ with our Heavenly Father. 
I want us to stop and think about that this morning. Have you ever really considered this privilege? You, because of Jesus Christ, are to come into the presence of Almighty God, the all-glorious, all-powerful, the magnificent creator of the universe. He bids you come and speak with him. To echo the words of that wonderful hymn that we sang together just last week, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Beloved, if you do not know this privilege, then it is my hope and my prayer that over the next couple of weeks as we pause and we look to this outline that Jesus gives us here to approach Almighty God in prayer, that it will become gloriously evident to you of exactly what it is that you've been given. When you fail to come to your Father in prayer, you do far more then simply ignore your duty as his child. You neglect the very exercise of family privilege. You are neglecting a gift that Jesus Christ has purchased for you through the spilling of his precious blood. Because he came and died to reconcile sinners like you and I to give us a righteousness that unlike our own flickering, feeble attempts at righteousness, is a righteousness that endures eternally. Because he did that, we as foul sinners who stand in desperate need of the grace of Almighty God, we can come, in fact, we are told to come, our sinfulness being safely covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are to come rejoicing, resting, trusting into the presence of a perfectly holy God. Beloved, it truly is an amazing thing for you and I to consider. And this morning, as we continue to look at the way in which Jesus has told us to pray, it is that holiness that I think so deserves, in fact, I would tell you, demands our attention here in this text. So I'd like you to give your attention this morning to the reading of the perfect, infallible, and errant Word of God. And follow along in your Bibles as I read now from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Jesus is, is speaking. He says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of the word of of God, may he always bless the reading of it. Brothers and sisters, we are moving into the portion of this prayer that has come to be known as the petitions of this prayer. Last week, 
we look together at what I would refer to as the invocation, right? Our Father who art in heaven. And we were reminded that we must be mindful of our approach to Almighty God in prayer. You remember I said we do not simply rush. We do not just barge into the presence of God, peppering Him with our many needs and wants. We stop for a moment at the very outset of prayer. We are to sort of figuratively place our hands over our mouths and remind ourselves of exactly what it is that we are about to do. We, in a sense, must pause to recollect whose presence it is that we are coming into. And we are to acknowledge just who and what He is. We pause in order to remind ourselves of the magnificence of this God and His perfect holiness. We also pause to recognize our own unworthiness, our own unholiness, and the perfect work of Jesus Christ for us in our redemption, which allows us to come. We only come in Him, united to Him by God-given faith. And so we begin by acknowledging that God has indeed called us to come as His children. We have been adopted through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are now co-heirs of a heavenly, eternal inheritance with and through Him. We are the very children of the Father. We also acknowledge in this invocation that he is not here. We talked about that. He is not here where the full weight of his glory must be held back. Lest this sinful, wicked, fallen world be absolutely consumed. But he is our father in heaven. Heaven, which alone can exist and was made in His infinite wisdom to exist, even while in the indescribable presence of His unfathomable, unbridled glory. Before we begin to petition the Lord of hosts, we pause and we remind ourselves who it is that we are petitioning and who it is that dares to petition and why it is that we are able to do so. I want to tell you historically, there has been much debate within the church of Jesus Christ about whether this prayer is spelled out for us here in six petitions or seven. Those who would advocate the inclusion of a a seventh position would then divide the sixth petition into two separate petitions. So they would say that lead us not into temptation is a separate petition from but deliver us from evil. But speaking for us and what we confess as a church, we have the advantage of holding to a solid confession of faith as what we find in the three forms of unity, in which our fathers in the faith have already wrestled with this very question, and we have in our own Heidelberg Catechism spelled out for us the six separate petitions of this prayer in questions 119 through 129. And this morning, it's my hope, is my hope to focus in on just the first three petitions, all of which I think kind of go together in that all of them deal with both the holiness of Almighty God 
and the passionate desire of his children to see to it that his name would be held in awe and in reverence throughout this fallen world. We see something here that I think is essential for us to understand when it comes to our approach to prayer. Before we can even begin to think of ourselves and our own needs in prayer, before we can even really begin to think even of the needs of others, Jesus calls on us here to first stop and recall who it is and what we are doing when we pray, and then we are to petition Almighty God specifically with regards to His honor and His glory. Beloved, do you see that here? It sounds simple enough, right? I would say that there is probably no principle in the entirety of our Christian existence that exceeds this principle a matter of importance in our Christian lives. And yet, I doubt that there is a principle more understated within so much of what passes as evangelical Christianity today. This principle should be the very fruit of the gospel being heard with ears that hear and seen with eyes that truly see. The gospel should fill the child of God with a desire to see his name, the name of God, honored, glorified, magnified throughout the earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on this Sermon on the Mount, and specifically on this portion, says this. He says, We tend to assume that we are quite sound and clear about principles, and that all we need is instruction about the details. The actual truth, of course, is the exact reverse of that. If only we would start in prayer with this true sense of the invocation. If only we would recollect that we are in the presence of God. And that the eternal and almighty God is there looking upon us as our Father. And that He is more ready to bless and to surround us with His love than we are ready to ever receive that blessing. We should achieve more in that simple moment of recollection than all of our prayers put together are likely to achieve apart from that realization. If only we all had this concern about God and his honor and his glory. You understand, this is the beginning of our coming to our Father and our making that first necessary petition. Hallowed be thy name. That word there translated in English as hallowed or hallowed comes from the Greek word hagiatso. It's a word that literally means to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify. And so when we petition Almighty God, asking Him to make His name hallowed in the earth, that is what we are doing. We are saying, Lord, make Your name to be understood in a way that men everywhere, in all places, recognize that it's above all things. That it's a name to be revered. That it's to be held in the highest regard. It's to be referred. It's to be feared and respected above everything else. This is how Jesus says we are to begin our prayer. 
Our desires and our petitions about God and His glory must by necessity come first. Our first concern. Regardless, you understand, beloved, and hear me on this, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our work, regardless of our apparent desperation, Jesus says that when we approach our Father in heaven, that we should first and foremost be concerned with His glory in the earth. We should pray that the very name of God would be held in the highest regard by all men. And I am sure that you will agree that we are indeed living in a day that that is certainly not the case with this world. The name of our God in our own culture is much more easily recognized as a curse. I always marvel at the blind morality police that are censoring television and radio. And how they're always more concerned with the proclaiming of foolish, ignorant, meaningless words. And I'm not going to give examples of those words. I trust you know the words I'm talking about. They're more concerned with empty, meaningless, hollow, ignorant words than they are with loaded words that are absolutely filled with purpose, filled with meaning, such as the taking of God's holy name in vain. It's permissible... To speak the name of Almighty God in vain as a common curse word or as an indication of surprise. It's more permissible to do that than it is to utter some grotesque, meaningless word devoid of any real offense. Beloved, it's unimaginable that that should be the case. It's also a constant reminder to us of the far-reaching effects, the devastation of sin. I hope when we consider the foulness of our sin in this kind of thing that we are at once driven to Jesus Christ who alone is perfect, who alone stands pure and undefiled by the fallenness of the world. There's so little reverence For the name of Almighty God in the world today. And unfortunately, beloved, I'm afraid that what commonly passes for the church is not at all exempted here. I cringe when I see young Christian people wearing shirts with silly slogans on them like Jesus is my homeboy. Or when I hear singing of any of the countless culture-driven praise songs that are content to describe Almighty God as being just like us. A God of our own making, a God not at all revealed by Scripture, but by the whims and fancies of foolish men. This flippancy about the name of Almighty God is everywhere. I remember telling you, it just came up in a conversation yesterday, kind of giving me a hard time because I, I'm, I'm appalled by a popular country song. And it was several years ago, I was listening to an interview with a famous country and western singer who described to his interviewer just how important his relationship with the guy upstairs was. And they followed the interview with an example of this guy's steadfast faith. And it was one of his songs that he put out on popular radio titled, Me and God, where he made the, the biblically ignorant proclamation in that song, Me and God, me and God, we go together like two peas in a pot. 
me and God. And as this interviewer gushed, I mean gushed about the courage of this guy to live out his faith and his musical expression, all I could think was that this poor, misguided, foolish man did not know the God of Scripture. The God who the angels could only refer to as holy, holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. But this flippancy and the way we would even dare to speak of God is the mindset that absolutely permeates our culture. And it's born out of a complete ignorance of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us within the pages of the Bible. Jesus says that we begin prayer by calling for God's name to be hallowed. What do we know about God's name? Well, we know quite a bit from Scripture. God revealed himself to the Israelites in part through his names. You will remember that for their many faults, Israel did understand, at least on the surface, how important it was to revere God's holy name. They unfortunately became so legalistic about it, acknowledging it in their rules, but neglecting the true evidence of it having ever moved from their mouths to their hearts. The Jewish people would not even speak the proper name of Almighty God. They considered His name to be so sacred that they would not say out loud the name Yahweh, by which God described himself as the I am who I am. Or Adonai, which meant the Lord God. They eventually took the consonants from Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai, and they formed the word Jehovah. They would not even write out the proper name of Almighty God. His name was to be revered. By calling our attention to the name of God here, and it's being hallowed, Jesus is reminding us far more of just, than just God's titles. In His name, as He has revealed it to us in Scripture, we see all that He is to the degree that we're able to see it. We see in His names His character, His plan, His will. He's represented in Scripture by many names, all of which, which speak to these things. Our salvation, His attributes, His power. He has been revealed in Scripture as Elohim, which points to His strength and His power. He is Jehovah, which means the self-existent one. He is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. He is Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord is our peace. Beloved, there's so much to consider in the various names of God, and we see in all of them that He is God. That He alone is omnipotent. He alone is worthy of all praise. And of course, we see in the New Testament that Jesus did not simply call upon us to come before God, concerned first and foremost about His name and His glory, but He Himself did the same thing. 
As he went to the Father in prayer, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says things like, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. That's how his prayer begins. Concerned first and foremost with the glory of the Father in heaven. He also says, starting in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have called me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. In the end of that prayer, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world did not know you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you love me may be in them and me in them. You understand, Jesus was very concerned with the name of Almighty God and it being known and understood and loved and revered. And we have to see it. That's exactly what he's calling us to. We are called to know the name of God and to hallow it accordingly. And as the children of God, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, as those who truly belong to him, we are to desire that the world might know that name and hallow it. Hallowed be thy name. The psalmist in Psalm 34 uses the expression that we are to magnify the name of God. He says, O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You understand what he's saying. God is eternal. God is the self-existent one. He is absolute truth. He is perfect. So how is it that we as feeble, seriously flawed men and women could ever magnify such a being as Almighty God? He's calling on us not to do the impossible, to add to the greatness of God, but rather that the greatness of God would be evident among men. That we, as fallen men and women, grateful for our salvation, would live our lives to His glory for the honor of His name. Hallowed be Thy name. That we would not just be content to speak of His greatness, but that our lives as we have been given the Holy Spirit would bear forth the fruit of His kingdom. All of it for the glory of His name. That you and I would be separate from the world. That we would truly be that city on a hill. Do you understand? Beloved, I, I have to ask you hard questions, right? The Word of God speaks to us truth, and the question is, how does your life speak to the greatness of His name? How does your life magnify His name? 
Beloved, that we would first seek his glory and the honor of his name in our prayers and in our lives. That the Christian life, life quorum Deo, would be characterized by the pursuit of God's glory and not the pursuit of our own. Is God's glory truly what you are seeking in the Christian life? That his glory, his kingdom, his will would be our purpose. That we would not be content to build and protect our own puny, powerless, personal little kingdoms and mistakenly call it serious Christianity. Do you desire to see the name of Almighty God hallowed more than you desire to see it with your own? I want you to listen to the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 122. It asks, what is that first petition? This is the answer. Hallowed be thy name. That is, first grant, first grant us, I'm sorry, that is, grant us first rightly to know thee, and to hallow, magnify, and praise thee in all of thy works, in which thy power, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth shine forth, and further, that we so order our whole life, our thoughts, our words and deeds, that thy name may not be blasphemed, but honored and praised on our account. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you again this morning, does your life speak to the glory of this name, this God? What do you live for this morning? Or have you bought into the lie that the Christian life really is just all about you? Your legacy, your righteousness, your works, your agenda, your tradition. Has your undeserved salvation given to you through the gift of faith in Jesus Christ solely by the grace of Almighty God led you to true gratitude which becomes evident in lives that show forth obedience? Because, of the per- because as the purchased bride of the bridegroom, it gives us joy and it becomes our delight to obey. You see, this is what we're called to. As we hallow the name of God and seek to have it hallowed by those around us by the grace of God. That same thought continues then into the second and third petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, there's a very logical order here, isn't there? We start concerned for God's glory in our own lives and amongst our fellow man, and we then must stop and think that his name will not always be hallowed here. We live in a fallen world, fallen in our father Adam, who sinned and all of creation, of course, fell with him. Because of sin, there is yet another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of lies, the kingdom of Satan. Our desire as Christians ought to be that God's name will be glorified, but the moment we come to that realization, we see that there is certainly opposition and evidence, isn't there? We are faced with the fact that there is evil, and sin is a reality, not just out there in the world, but even within our own heart. 
We see that Satan is roaming about, looking for whom he might devour. However, beloved, we need to know something very specific about God's name and God's kingdom. It is the superior kingdom. In fact, it is the only kingdom because Satan's kingdom is an inferior kingdom. His kingdom is not eternal. God has promised that he would one day establish his kingdom for eternity when all his enemies will fall at his feet and only his kingdom will endure. The whole Bible, the whole of creation looks forward longingly toward that day. We must understand in one sense that at least that his kingdom has already come. The outcome is made certain already. The verdict has already been handed down. Jesus Christ is king. He came, he lived blameless under the law, he died in our place, receiving upon himself the wrath of Almighty God against our sin. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, acting as it were, as the advocate of those whom he has purchased with his blood. His kingdom has come. Praise God. The kingdom is also here at this moment in the hearts of those who by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, submit themselves to his rule. It's present in the church, in the hearts of the people who look to Jesus Christ and his gospel by faith. But the day is coming when he will come again and establish his kingdom in finality once and for all. That day and its final stage is still yet to come. And what it really amounts to is this. Beloved, our desire should be for the kingdom of God to come in glory upon the hearts of men. Is that your desire this morning in your Christianity? We should desire that this kingdom would be first firmly established in our own hearts. We should desire to see it in evidence in our own lives as we worship him with all that we are. We should be anxious, though, to see it in evidence in the hearts and the lives of the men, women, and children that God has placed all around us in this life. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for nothing less than the success of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glorious building up of his kingdom. We are praying for the conversion of men and women all over this planet. We are also acknowledging our own zeal for that day when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, and we who are weak will be gathered into his barn while the chaff will be thrown into the fire to burn for eternity. Oh, that we would all long and pray for that day. That we would desire his kingdom. That we would desire the hallowing of his name far more than we would desire our own. That we would stop looking to be offended by attacks against what we perceive to be our tiny kingdoms. Our rights. That we would zealously celebrate the firm establishment of his kingdom. And finally, we pray for his will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And I trust that you would agree with me this morning, beloved, that that really needs very little explanation, does it? 
Nevertheless, I love the Heidelberg on this one as well. I want you to listen to the explanation in the third petition, question 124. This is the answer. That is, grant that we and all men renounce our own will. And without gainsaying, obey thy will, which alone is good, so that everyone may fulfill his office and calling as willingly and as faithfully as even the angels do in heaven. Beloved, as we enter into prayer with our Father in heaven, we are called to begin by praying for the only thing ultimately that matters, that is that Almighty God would be glorified, that His name would be honored. It should be the innermost, greatest desire of all of His children. We should so long and desire to truly know this God and to know this name. We should long and desire that the world would know Him by the grace of God as He truly is as well. Everything else in life pales to this need. Oh, that the world would know God, and having known Him, that they would revere His holy name. Let me ask you something this morning. Now, this is a lot for us to wrap our minds around. It's a lot for us to think and meditate upon us. I want to ask you this. What is it that troubles your mind this morning? What anxieties, what fears plague you even now as you have come into the house of God with the people of God to worship and revere Him, fear Him, exalt His holy name. Beloved, can you pray with our Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I hope that you're able. And I hope that you will. Beloved, I pray that the result would be that the name of God would come to be revered even in this very community. As people look to your lives and cannot help but to cry out to our Father in heaven. Asking that his name would be exalted, hallowed. That his kingdom would come in power and glory. And that we would be obedient to his will even as the angels in heaven. Who stand in his glorious unveiled presence. So that the whole world would marvel at the power and the majesty and the unrivaled glory of this God. Amen. Let's pray.